History Lecture Number 80, Rabbi Bleiweiss. We are firmly ensconced in the uh, early Rishonim. The Ri Migash, Rav Yosef Migash, his dates are 1077 to 1141. When he was 12 years old, he moved to Lasina. Do you remember who had a yeshiva there, having moved from Fez, Morocco? Considered the last of the Gaonim, the first of the Rishonim, the Rif. The Rif had, had set up by then um, uh, in, his, in, in a yeshiva after being a refugee. And um, 14 years later, the, uh, the Rif dies. And if you remember, the Rif appoints his, as his successor, not his own son, but the Ri himself, recognizing his greatness. So he is essentially the next in line in terms of the Masaira. Uh, and among his great students is Rav Maimon. And Rav Maimon, of course, will be his own son's primary teacher, the Rambam. So you can, you, this is an important straight line to draw as you're setting up your own uh, family tree of, of, uh, of interconnectedness of the Rishonim. Uh, so it goes to the Rif, to the Rimigash, to the Rambam. The Rambam himself writes about the Ri, he's the Rimigashi, says, the Talmudic learning of this man amazing, e- amazes everyone. This is how the Rambam, listen to this description. I'd like the Rambam to say such a thing about me. He said, well, you know, like Halavai, right? That wouldn't happen, but, but, uh, but uh, he says, his equal has never existed. That's how, the Rambam, that's how enamored the Rambam was of his father's Rebbe. He says, when I think of how, and, and apparently he taught the Rambam too, or Yamam was a very young, young, young uh, person, he says, when I think of how much he knew, my head hurts. Uh, a young person. He was six when the Migash died. But apparently at six years old, he was impressionable and, and took in whatever he took in, and the rest was from his father. Um, in fact, Rambam said his, his source of greatness was the Migash. So I, there's more you can say. I'm being deliberately, I'm trying to be uh, brief with my biographies, even though, you know, at the, at the risk of, get, of, of being entirely biographical, but, but so much of history is learned through these tzaddikim that we'll, we're going to be focusing on them. Um, the next tzaddik I'm going to talk about is Rav Avram Ibn Ezra. Uh, the great Ibn Ezra, the Perush on the Chumash, his dates are 1089 to 1164. He also comes from what we think of as Spain, uh, Tudela in his case, but he moved to, moves to Cordova, and then he's sent in exile. As in his, in his uh, later years, the fanatic Almohads uh, come and conquer Spain. We remember that the Muslims have been mostly, and this is a generalization, probably an oversimplification, but mostly what we would think of as moderate, certainly those of us who are familiar with fanatical, radical Islam of today, um, Daniel didn't get cake. Pass the man, pass the man some cake. Uh, and yeah, oh, fine, okay. Yeah, you don't like my wife's cake? That's fine. Right no, okay, I know, I know that feeling. I'm also not having it right this moment. The, uh, feel free if you change your mind. The, um, so the Almohads are the exception to the rule of the ancient... Uh, one of the exceptions of the world, they're, they're, they're crazy, and they conquer Spain, uh, and in 1148, um, the Ibn Ezra escapes, and will spend the remainder of his life, the next 16 years, wandering around the world, what we think of the Mediterranean basin, uh, where the Jews were, he gets to Eretz Yisrael, he has no home. It's important to remember this. We, we learn our Rishonim, as we correctly should, and we think of them living these kind of gilded lives, writing their pirushim, 
And we don't realize that some of them had incredibly tragic, difficult existences. Imagine Ibn Ezra is just a refugee, which means he was like a pauper on the streets. And um, his perush on not just Chomash, on, on the Tanakh, is uh, one of the great perushim, one of the great commentaries. It's also, um, he's what we can call iconoclastic, which means uh, he's, he does not hesitate to take on um, things that, or, or, or ideas or people who are, other, are held in incredibly high esteem, and he's fearless. For example, the great Paitan, Rabbi Lazar HaKalir, who some identify, the Balitosos identify him as Rabbi Lazar, the son of the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, um, the great Rabbi Lazar HaKalir, who wrote most of our kinos on Tisha B'Av, among other things. So the Ibn Ezra is critical. Takes him on, has, has questions. Um, he has a he has a what I find a, uh, eminently quotable comment on tzitzis when it says leman tizkru tizkru we emphasize in order that you should remember all of my mitzvahs when you're wearing the tzitzis. So the the Ibn Ezra tells us that um, he points out that we wear tzitzis and of course we should wear them when we're davening because we want to remember Hashem. But you know it's less critical than because a person's less likely to forget himself standing there in Shmona's ray. It's not about in the middle of Shmona's ray to suddenly take a brick out and smash the window of a jewelry store to take the diamonds in the display case. That just usually doesn't happen. I don't know about when you're davening, or to pickpocket the guy to his right as he's in the middle of uh, Shmakolenu. That usually doesn't happen by me. Ibn Ezra points out it's dafka in all the other times in life when we are more apt to forget ourselves that's when you need tzitzis more than ever so dafka, um, dafka I point out on the basketball court or in the middle of business meeting or uh, in the shuk or wherever you might be where you would be more likely to forget yourself that's when we need to remember the mitzvot more than ever um, the Ibn Ezra writes in addition to his perush on the, on the Tanakh he writes um, piutim as many of them did, he he uh, he he is the author of Sama Nafshi, different melodies for that. One of the one of the famous zvirus that we sing on um, Leil Shabbos and on Shabbos morning among his among his great famous works. Anybody know? You all know it. And it's actually his name is in the uh, in the acrostic. You'll find you'll find you'll find yeah. Um, he's also broadly accomplished. He, um, this is attributed to him. Uh, I have a question if it's really accurate, but I seem to find it from a reliable source. He was utterly unsuccessful in his business ventures, and this is a great translation of his own account about his, his, his relative failures in business. He, says, he said, and it rhymes in English beautifully, if I sold shrouds, no one would die. If I sold lamps, then in the sky, the sun for spite would shine at night. Uh, Okay, um, he has a hard life. Three of his sons die. A fourth converts to Christianity. Um, but he travels around, and we said that he was—he may have been related by marriage to the Kuzari. Might have married the Kuzari, the Rabbi Yehuda Levi's daughter, the Bala Kuzari. Uh, he also he describes in his travels meeting up with none other than Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi's grandson, and he said he learned with them. Can you imagine? I'd love to be present to see that Chavrusa, the Ibn Ezra, and Rabbeinu Tam sitting in Steigen. Uh, we're going to leave Spain for a little bit and we're going to spend a little bit of time north 
as we now meet some of the great uh, uh, conduits, the receptors of the Ashkenazi tradition, specifically the Bali Tosfos, uh, and some of, some of the great figures involved in the, in the process of the Tosfos. Um, the first, we met Rashi. Rashi kicks off the process, I mean, and arguably really Rabbeinu Gershom, more Angola does, but Rashi's descendants and, and students and student students become part of this whole vast school that we call the Tosfos, that change, that change all of Torah learning, uh, add to it immeasurably. And the first figure I'm going to talk about is Rav Shmuel ben Meir, who's known to us as the Rashbam. The Rashbam, he lived from 1085 to 1174. Um, the Rashbam's little brother is a little bit more famous. That's Rav Yaakov ben Meir, otherwise known as Rabbeinu Tam. So Rashbam is the older brother of Rabbeinu Tam. It's important to keep track of, because you're going to encounter, you're going to learn, for example, Baba Basra, and you're going to be using the perush of the Rashbam, or the last pair of Pesachim, which is very, very commonly studied, especially, it's a classic limud that people take on for the Chodesh Nisan, for the for the Manin of Nisan. They, they learn, among other things, there's this um, invaluable Halachic discussion, a Gadic discussion in the in the tenth chapter of Psachim, and you'll be learning the the commentary of the Rashbam, and you should have in your mind that okay, he's the older brother of Rabbeinu Tam. It, he basically he, the way to understand him is in most of the places in Shas, not all, in most of the places in Shas where we don't have Rashi, the Rashbam fills in. I mentioned um, Rashi's son-in-law, the Rivan fills in just the last little bit, the, the last few pages of our Masech, of Makos. So it's not only Rashbam, but he's the most, um, let's say, the most common. Wait, who's his son-in-law? The Rivan. We met him, I, I, I introduced him last week. <coughs> Rashbam has a distinction. Uh, people know him, and they, 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 they refer to this. He is what we can call a man of Pshat. And you think, well, that's no Chiddush. Rashi himself often reminds us that I'm only coming to explain the simple meaning of the text. Fine. The Rashbam takes that even further. He quotes the Chazal. Chazal famously teach, Ein mikra pshuto. You have to understand the simple meaning of the text, and you can't divorce, even though there's room to darshan, and we can expound, and there are four levels at least of the meaning of the, of the text, but we have to encounter the simple version, the simple meaning of the text, and towards that end, he was critical, even of his grandfather, even of Rashi. Can you do that? Can you criticize your grandfather if your grandfather's Rashi? Sure. Yes, they're both Rishonim. Uh, Rashi maybe, you know, has a stronger, more authoritative voice, but the Rashbam, is entitled, Rashbam was entitled to his opinion, and um, he feels that sometimes even Rashi stretches Pshat too far. Well, you've heard such ideas to explain their simple meaning of the text and others that we would say are, mm, really, that's what it means? comes up all the time in, in understanding. And uh, it's a subjective call, but there's certain things that, you know, that's really what the Pasuk sounds like, and that's not at all. I wouldn't have a million years thought of that as the meaning of the Pasuk. But uh, he is, he, we, the Rashbam is, is a stickler on sticking to the simple meaning of the, of the, of the text. Um, Another point of distinction, the Rashbam is considered the first Ashkenazi to cite the riff frequently. So you're talking about a time when the Sephardi tradition and the Ashkenazi tradition are now distinct. It's the early years, at least, that we can identify that there are no question the distinct um, tr 
traditions, nuschaos and davening, uh, and they live in different parts of the world, not very far apart, but apparently isolated enough to be distinct. Um, and yet we find the, 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 the early um, synergy, the, the inter interaction between them, and the Rashbam, for example, is the first to really frequently use the riff, the great uh, halachic book of the riff, as a, as a source. Um, personally, the, the Rashbam was wealthy. He made a living in textiles and had a dairy farm. Uh, and with all of the above, he was meticulous, not that we would expect otherwise, but we know, for example, that he made sure his daughter was present when they were milking the cows to make sure that all the milk was chal of Yisrael. They had non-Jewish servants, but, the, uh, but if there's a Jewish person supervising the, uh, the, the proceedings, then, uh, then, then, then it's kosher, it's chal of Yisrael. And she's a witness? She can um, That counts, that's good, because um, one of the, we're, we're concerned about different kinds of, um, uh, uh, the concern there is a lesser concern, or anyone, please help yourself, my wife's cake. Um, the, uh, he's taking a nap here. Yeah, by all means, have whatever you'd like. Um, the, um, you don't like my wife's cake? No, uh, I don't know if I got I'm teasing you, I'm teasing you. Have whatever you want, you don't have to have it either. Whatever you want to do. The, um, <clears throat> yeah, so the problem there is we're concerned that, among other things, that maybe they're going to mix it and, and replace it with non-kosher milk. Worry. They'll be worried she could report to her father. As long as there's some, um, somebody there, it's the, the term is called mirsas. As long as they might be concerned that something would happen, her supervision is more than adequate. That's why it's okay in America. Listen, mirsas also can extend not just to being somebody personally being there, but if somebody could walk in at any moment, that's also grounds for leniency. Or you could sue, like a lawsuit. Right, right, that's the famous Rav Moshe's uh, basis of his leniency, even though Mikardin, Rav Moshe, also held that people should, should try to have Kal of Yisrael. The um, Rasmus' little brother is Rav Yaakov ben Meir, or Rav Yaakov, of course, who's also called Ishtam, so this is Rabbeinu Tam, um, one of the Bali Tosfos. Um, Rabbeinu Tam is known for uh, coming from this intellectually uh, exacting, sharp mindset. The um, he uh, he he doesn't he doesn't hold back. He'll say he has a line. For example, Rashi was asleep when he wrote that. Um, he was wealthy. Also, the family the family was well off. Uh, we know from a certain Shaila when there's a discussion about Bishul Akum. Um, non-Jewish, uh, non-Jews who cook for you, which is another prohibition, and the potential is that your dishes, if they cook with your dishes, even kosher food, but nobody supervises them, your dishes would, would arguably not be kosher. It's also arguable what is and what is not supervision, like if you're in the same house, We just talked about that. We just, yeah, yeah, we just now, just now talked about that. Um, but um, we know the Rabbeinu Tam had, uh, because he mentions it in this tshuva, that he himself had 130 non-Jewish servants. So that's how wealthy, that gives us an insight into his own personal life, uh, how, how wealthy he actually was. Um, legend says, and some of you alluded to this legend, that when he was a child, um, he was sitting on grandfather's lap, and he reached up and pulled Rashi's tefillin off. That's the legend. Uh, of course, you understand, you appreciate the, uh, the greatness of the legend. Um, 
First of all, notice that once upon a time in the pre-modern era, um, Jews wore tefillin as where they're meant to be worn all day. Not in the night, but all day. Um, today we don't do that because we, in order to wear tefillin, you'd have to have machshavos tahiras, you have to have pure thoughts. Uh, it's harder for modern generations to maintain. There are people who do it. I, I, I have questions. That there's, there's some people you see, there's a couple of yeshivas in the old city where you see, the, you see the fellows walking around with their tefillin on. Sadly, the old city, the Jewish quarter, is a place, um, has become a place of social gathering uh, where, and, and tourism where not all the people present are modestly dressed, to say the least. So I don't know if they're wearing it all day, great, kolakavod, but I don't know how they justify walking around being exposed to the immodesty that they are. That's a question. But in any case, once upon a time, we weren't exposed to immodesty and we could maintain machshavos taharas all day long. And so Rashi's presumably wearing it all day and Rabbeinu Tam reaches up and pulls them off. And the reason, of course, the story is humorous is whether it's true or not is, is of course, famously, we have a machlokis, Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam, over what kind of tefillin should be, should be worn. Now, um, the legend continues that once Rabbeinu Tam had a dream, and when you're Rabbeinu Tam and you had a dream, they tend to mean a lot more than when you and I have dreams. So in his dream, Moshe Rabbeinu himself comes to him and asks him, why all the tumult? Why this big fuss that Rabbeinu Tam is making and that his tefillin are right and his grandfathers are wrong? Moshe Rabbeinu looks at Rabbeinu Tam and he says, Rashi is clearly right. To which uh, Rabbeinu Tam looks right back at Moshe Rabbeinu and says, Ta'isa, Moshe Rabbeinu. You're mistaken, sir. Um, the way most people explain it, it's not that Rashi invents a new position of tefillin and Rabbeinu Tam invents them. They're actually, they're earlier traditions of different versions of the tefillin that Rashi and then respectively Rabbeinu Tam um, articulate the details of these positions. That's why we have Rashi Tefillin and Rabbeinu Tam. I'm not going to give a whole shear on the subject. It could take us more than a shear just to explore it. I'm going to give you a couple of, of basic pointers. Hold the thought for just a moment. The Mechaber comes down. So if you want to know, there are the differences between the two, oversimplifying necessarily, is it comes out in the order that the Parshios in the, in the uh, Tefillin Shel Rosh there are four parshas, and how they're meant to appear, in which sequence they're meant to appear, is subject to the machlokis. Uh, there's also, excuse me, also in the tefillin shalyad, the, the arm uh, tefillin as well, there's, there's a question about that. There's also a very technical distinction where the, um, in which compartments the um, seyar egel, which means the tuft of gid, protrudes. Gid is the sinew with which it looks to our eyes like string, you see it in your tefillin, that's, and it has to come from this seyar gid. Um, and it, at one point, if you study your tefillin, maybe the next time you'll put them on, you'll notice in one area in a compartment, some of the, some of the gid protrudes, and they argue over that too. Wait, so in other words, they're technical distinctions. Yeah? Where? Like, if I look at my tefillin? You'll study it next. I don't want to slide into the tangent, because we'll never get out of here. If I um, you, will you tell me? Sure. Um, in any case, the... Halacha would be debated by later Rishonim. When it comes down to the Mahaber of Yosef Karo and the Shulchan Aruch, he paskins accordingly. Everybody's to wear Rashi tefillin, and Rabbeinu Tam tefillin should be worn only by a Baal Nefesh. Only by somebody who's considered a Baal Nefesh. Um, do we have any cake left? Well, there was cake. Uh, 
Okay. Um, only only by a. It's true. It's uh, for those of you who consume. Don't forget a bracha achrona. Wait, Rabbi, tell your wife that was one of the best cakes I've ever had. It's really yummy, isn't wow. it? Tell her by Yeshua, make an blessing. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Fitton. And I'll mention my wife, too. Um, yeah. Um, why was Rabbi Tom able to tell Moshe Rabbeinu? Remember, these are the legends. I can't verify any of these stories. The legends give us a flavor. Theoretically, this is accurate. Yeah. That was my comment. It means it's, uh, it's not in heaven. Well, among other things, it's not in heaven. Right, right, thank you. That's the answer. You just gave the answer. Yeah. Right, right. It's the same way that the Baskal, you remember the story of the Tanah Shalachnai? Yeah. The Baskal could descend and, and Paskin like Rabbi Eliezer Gadol and Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania can respond to Loba Shemayini. So that's, I think, in that spirit that the Rabbeinu Tam says, you know, that's not the way the halacha goes, as it were. In any case, a Baal Nefesh can wear the, only a Baal Nefesh, the Machaber says, should wear the Rebbeinu Tam. It will see in coming generations, uh, especially one of the controversies between some Hasidim and Misnagdim will center over um, who should wear Rebbeinu Tam. There is a widespread practice among certain Hasidim um, to wear Rebbeinu Tam tefillin, and even the ordinary person, not just, as the Machaber would have it, the Baal Nefesh. So these are, these are all subjects that have a big impact on us historically. Um, that's what I'm going to say on this subject. Yeah, go ahead. What's a Baal Good question. A Baal Nefesh is, I'm, one would say, let's say, the Mishnah Baruch. You know, like the, or the, the Machaber himself is a Baal Nefesh. Somebody holding on a very high level. And, to, not, and to, um, to presume that you're holding on that level might be a serious halachic problem. It just came up in another shir I gave of, anybody remember the term? Yuhara, which translates as um, pretentiousness, but it means, let's say, um, the guy who stands next to the Rosh Hashiva, and the Rosh Hashiva answers a very calm and quiet Amenia Heishmei, and, and the guy standing there screams it. It's, as, as it were, almost implying that, you know, I know how to say Heishmei, you, you know, you're saying it too softly. You're like more frum than the gedolim kind of an attitude. That's a problem. Don't, don't be pretentious in your observance. Be understated. That's, um, we have a lot of halachas around this, too. Uh, you shouldn't answer a main louder in volume than the person who says the bracha for similar reasons. Right? All these are concerns of yuhara. We want to serve a Kaddish Baruch but not have it come from a... has to come from a Lashem Shemayim place. And uh, these, are, these are delicate kinds of issues that you have to know how to balance it correctly. And if not, ask a shayla. Yeah, Barak? The Chovetz Chaim, though, was extremely, extremely modest. Uh, so, I mean, he probably wouldn't even have considered himself a bar on that fish. Probably not. Probably not, although, that, you know, they do take on. It's not true. When it comes to Hidur Mitzvah, they were very modest, but it, they would serve a Shem, anything to serve a Shem in a, in a better way, in a more so Mubudar way. Yeah, I think he would, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to give you just this so much to say. When we get to some of these figures, they're towering figures where we could just tell stories and I can cite beautiful halachas, deep, deep ideas. I'm going to give you, I'm going to suffice with just a few um, highlights, at least for me. Um, he has a whole discussion on different kinds of minhagim, actually very pertinent to the previous discussion about who should take on chumras <laughs> and what's considered a valid minhag. Do you know that there's a minhag, there's the, the minhag of Hussein when there's legitimate customs that we have, and of course we hold them, but there's a whole area referred to as minhag shtus, meaning just ill-informed, mistaken customs that Jews do. We have lots of these. I have a whole file called Valid or Baba Misa 
all kinds of things out there that are that are highly questionable, if not patently uh, absurd. Um, and Rabenu 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 uh, Tom is the one who points out to us that when it comes to such minhagim, remember that the word minhag spelled backwards, Gehenim. Great observation. In Sefer Yasha, one of his one of his great works, um, Rabenu Tam, in total, on a totally different note, um, describes Olam Hazen in the following profound way. He says, "This world is like a tunnel under a desert. While you're inside, you think that it's the only world. If you were to emerge, you would suddenly encounter open country and seas and planets." and stars. That's the way you're meant to think about our experience, as the Mishnah Perkyavo says, it's a prose door, it's a corridor, it's a very narrow corridor where our perspective is often, um, is often uh, blinds us from the realities. Uh, and then, of course, it's a, that's a launching point to a, to, to a much greater, deeper analysis of what our, our portion is in this world. Um, he, he taught in the yeshiva in a place in France called Ramarup, uh, he becomes, his is one of the yeshivas that we encounter. We've seen several of these in history. Rabbi Yochanan, Hanaf, Barnafcha, Rabs was like this. Rabbi Haigon we saw recently. Everybody wants to learn with Rabbeinu Tam. He's that kind of a stature. Um, his approach will be the, to- the approach that we associate with the Bali Tosfos is to um, take a comprehensive, inter- in, in, um, integrating approach by comparing sugyas with sugyas with sugyas. And any of us, uh, some of you have had lots of experience learning Tosfos, some of you have at least dabbled a little bit in Tosfos, you'll know that one of the things to expect when you learn Tosfos is that frequently they'll say, hey, how could Rashi say this? Or how could our Gemara be talking about this? Don't you know that the Gemara over in Gitin or Zvachim or someplace else in vast area of Shas or all the, all the um, Chazal's literature uh, says otherwise? We have to compare and contrast. So he takes it, it, an integrative, uh, uh, global kind of a look at everything and with this kind of perfect um, overview is able to give a much more comprehensive analysis. Um, this would become the basis. This analysis would eventually evolve into the schools that we call very loosely the Baalei Tosifos. And it'll develop over several generations almost but not quite 200 years go into the Bali Tosfos. The final version, or one of the final versions, we have in the Daph of our Gemara. But you have to appreciate this. It's not like when they started, they thought, hey, we're the Bali Tosfos. We're going to be on the right side. Rashi's on the left, or depending on what, what, what page you're on, actually. Uh, left side, right side. But, um, you know, this was a process that began. Rabbeinu Tam, for his own efforts, had some 80 primary students who gathered around and... and um, and, and savored every word of the Rebbe, and sometimes that's kashis, that's, that's what you do. Some of his foremost students we know of, they, are, they come up a lot in Tosfos, they include of Chaim Cohen, there's um, a, the Sefer Yireim, the author of the Sefer Yireim, uh, who's, who's Eliezer of Metz, uh, and a name I'm going I'm to comment on the last, Rav Shimshon Mishans, another place in, in France, and Rav Shimshon is, plays it, uh, another, another very important role. Um, we'll get to him soon. A few of Rabbeinu Tam's um, novel introductions into halacha that have become accepted, it was controversial. But these are the centuries where we find lots of gedolim, and not just gedolim, a lot of people writing poems. 
They're religious poems. We call them piyutim. We sing zmiros. I've been giving examples. We just saw that the uh, Ibn Ezra wrote Ikiyah Shmerah Shabbos and Samanafshi. And and I'm going to give you many more examples. We also have a lot of these poems that filter their way into our davening, into the liturgy. And how can they do that? I mean, who are they? And al-smachma, by what authority do they have to be able to introduce, you know, isn't our tefillah, doesn't it go back to the Anshayi Knesset Gedola? Doesn't there something in it that's, that's sacrosanct and who is a modern person to introduce? So that's discussed and it's controversial. And Rabbi Nutam is of the view that the people who wrote certain piyutim are of such a high stature um, that it belongs. It's all part of the ongoing praise and shevach and hoda'ah uh, and, and, and thanks that we give the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Others argue that they that introducing some of these in some places are a hefsek, are a pause, a break in the davening, and Rabbeinu Tam says, no, they're not. They're about the davening. I mean, I would, I would express it just like bring the salt to the table is not a hefsek between al-natilas yadayim and amotzi, so too these piyutim are not. Do you know where it comes up a lot? On Yamim Noraim, on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur, and not every place has the same piyutim, but you know what I'm talking about? Do you ever get lost in shul? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, what page are they on? And, yeah. Yeah, and then like, you're going to these long pew. A lot of those are piyutim. They're not part of the essential nusach. If we pared down the essential nusach, we'd be in and out of shul much, much quicker in, in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But, um, but we add the piyutim as a way of elevating our tefillah experience. Um, in fact, Rabbeinu Tam himself was the author of many piyutim, and many of, the, many of Rabbeinu Tam's became incorporated in the davening, for the record. Uh, like his fa- like his, his older brother, he was wealthy. We said he had 150, 130 ser- servants. He had a vast estate. He had vineyards. They, he, he, like his grandfather, was a vintner. Um, his project was he want he worked to try to make every Jew commit to learning Torah because they weren't in these days. Even though that's our job, that's what we're supposed to do. That's an obligation, and every and every, every individual the remaining time worked towards that. And again, so we picture this, this great figure, this galvanizing figure, who's Gunnel Hador and charismatic and had a huge influence and he had wealth, so you kind of feel like he's, you know, he's, he, he, nobody can touch him. Well, you know, no. There's one episode, for example, where knights raid Rabbeinu Tam's uh, home and he's, he barely gets away with his life. They almost murder him. They try to convert him, he resists. And uh, it's not a simple, simple time, even for the wealthy, uh, established Jews. They themselves sometimes become targets. I'm going to do something now. I hope it's not confusing. You know, how do you teach this period of time? Should I stick purely chronological, or should I go with ideas? I'm going to do the latter idea. I'm going to stick now to the Balitosfos, because they really are a process, and I think you understand, I understand it best, by trying to consider it from the beginning to the end of the process, more or less, which means I'm going to bounce ahead in, in history a little bit, a couple centuries, I mean, a century and a half or so, and then I'm going to move back. Right? So maybe your sense of chronology will be a little distorted. Um, we're, for example, today not going to get to the Holy Rambam. We might just barely get there, but I don't think so. Um, so you should picture Rambam is roughly a contemporary of Rabbeinu Tam. Rambam, I always remind myself that he lived le- less than a half an hour. The second of the calendar, he was 11.35 to 12.04. That's less than a half hour. Right, so Rabbeinu Tam is 1100 to 1171. Okay, so, um, you know, he's, he's actually um, 
Rabbeinu Tam is older than the Rambam, but you know, just so you get the chronology a little bit. Uh, so we're now going to focus on Ashkenaz for, for, for the next little bit. Um, in the 12th and then 13th century, there were hundreds of people considered Baalei Tosfos. This was the time in, in, in the Ashkenazi, we talk about Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz technically means German, in, in these days Ashkenazi Jews are centered in France and then later in Germany. Um, they are comprised of certainly Rashi's family and students, but many others also flock to become part of this. In contrast, as we said, to Rashi's emphasis on Pshat, we said that the Tosfos take, follow Rabbeinu Tam in taking this comprehensive view for a more systematic understanding because their goal is nothing less to try to come, come out with a systematic approach to Pasuking Halacha. It's necessary right now. What was previously understood and maybe automatic for the average Jew now increasingly eludes people. The Tosfos really are a whole system of bringing down halacha in practical matters in, in, in uh, <coughs> rigorous analysis and care and precision. Um, when it comes down to the last, the later school of the Bali Tosfos, when it's in Germany already, um, we find there's less of a focus on the theoretical, abstract, you know, let's compare the Gemaras, and much more on practical halacha. Um, the last of the Bali Tosfos, we'll see, will, is considered, you know, sometimes it's, it's Rabbi Meir of Rutenberg is considered the last of the Bali Tosfos. Others would say it's his student, the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher. And at that point already, we're going to find a lot more practical halacha. Now, we said that there, is, there are different versions of Tosfos. The common version that we're used to in the Vilna Shas, you realize the Vilna Shas is only from the 19th century, um, that version is one version. Um, it first, that version first appeared in one of the first printed Talmuds, what's called the Sansino Talmud. Don't confuse it with the Sansino translation. Sansino was simply a, a, a major publishing city in Italy. That's why a lot of our a lot of the names are Sansino, named after the city. Um, and that's the first printed edition of the full Bavli, included the Tosfos that we have. But they're alternate kinds of versions of Tosfos. And you should know this as students. And hopefully, you know, we'll all have long careers learning Shas. So you need to know. Sometimes you look up a Tosfos and you don't get it. So one trick is to compare it with the text of another version of Tosfos. For example, the Rush himself has what's a different perush, not to confuse with his perush in the back of our Gemara, but there's a book called Tosfos Harosh. There's Tosfos Rebbeinu Shimshon of Shantz, there's Tosfos Rebbeinu Peretz, and others in different parts of Shas, and you can compare and contrast. Sometimes there are different versions, and they come out with different conclusions, or they elucidate in a different way that you can suddenly, you look up one, and oh, that's what they were talking about. You can get that. Fill in the blanks. The... Um, in learning Tosfos, often Tosfos is simply anonymous. We found that this year so far, right? Just, Tosfos just brings it as if it's like this like unified voice. Okay. Um, for example, in the Gemara Brochos, we have a discussion on people who are exempt from um, davening. Who's exempt from davening? So the Gemara talks about Hoche Drochim, people who are traveling. Uh, the problem there is Ein Lo Yishuv Das. He's not settled. His mind's not settled. He won't get adequate kavana. So such a person, the Gemara there says, is exempt from davening. Another example is a chasan on his wedding night. is too distracted with other mitzvahs that he has to perform that night. So he's exempt from davening. 
And come the Tosfos, and this is one of the anonymous Tosfos, they apparently were consensus that these leniencies no longer apply. This is a very famous Tosfos. They no longer apply because, I'm quoting, anyway, we don't really have the right Kavana when we dive in to begin with. So to be exempt because you're not going to get good enough Kavana when our generations, um, you know, our Kavana kind of flounders in our, uh, anyway, is not, is not grounds anymore for exemption. Well, if that's true in the days of the Bali Tosfos, um, I don't imagine that our generation's Kavana has gotten much better. Ooh, ooh, anybody in my Gemara, and if anybody wants to bring this and you want to use this in my Gemara class as Kavana, uh, you, you'd have to take this and look it up, maybe find some uh, source for it. But there's, that's certainly a good insight about Kavana and Davening. Yeah, go ahead. The Bartonura, when was he, when was he around? Uh, the Bartonura is late 15th century, a few so, hundred years so, later. All right, because he brings down the Toast he must. In, sure, in for sure. For sure, it's a famous idea. Some of the Balitosfos include Rav Simcha ben Shmuel of Vitri in France, who is a student of Rashi, and his famous achievement, he compiled what's called Machzor Vitri. Have you heard of that? Okay, famous, famous book. Rashi makes reference to it all the time. Machzor Vitri. Other Rishoni make reference to it. It's a book of halacha. It's also on tefillah. It's based on the Bahag from the Gaonim. And um, it also draws from Rav Amnam Gaon Sidur. It draws heavily on Rashi's tshuvas. I said Rashi refers to it. That's, that's, that's an act. Rashi, there is a reference because Rashi knew of it, but it's a later text. So usually it's the later, it's the Balitosos refer to the Machsar Vitri. Um, after Rebbein Tam, arguably the second most famous of the Balitosfos, anybody know? The second most famous of the Balitosfos is the Rihazokin, the Ri of Dampierre, who is, um, he dies around 11, 11, uh, 1185. Um, he has a student called the Ritzbah, who's sometimes called the Rihabahur. The young man, the Ri, as opposed to the old man, Ri, and the, who is the brother of Rabbi Yenu Shimshon of Shantz. You see the interconnectedness of many of the Balitosfos, um, right? So there's the, they're, they're in contrast with this Ri Azakin and the Ri Abachar. So the Ri Azakin is the nephew of Rabbi Tam, which means he's Rashi's great-grandson. And um, he's cited virtually on every page of Tosfos, which is something you'd like on your resume. Yes, I'm cited on every page of Tosfos. <coughs> Thank you. Um, almost as frequently as Rabbeinu Tam. So, so that means Rabbeinu Tam is on, definitely on every page, right? Yeah, yeah, almost certainly. Um, the Ri himself has over 60 students, and the way they divided it up, tell me who this sounds like, little history test. Each of his students knew at least one Masechta by heart, which meant as they were analyzing, and this is like typical of the, of the Tosfos' whole approach, that means that as they, if you picture the Riazokin sitting in Shear, giving over the Shear, they had collectively all of Shas at their fingertips. You know, you're the Yavamos man, you're the Brachos man, and somebody would say an idea, and, and one of them would hear, and they say, hey, wait, there's a problem over here. Um, who is that like? Almost, almost, uh, not quite. Do you remember we met, we met somebody who's considered, who is since, Gemara talks about how he saved Tyra because he has a similar approach, and we davened. Oh no, I davened. You didn't go there. We never wanted to go in there. We passed it. I just davened there last week um, by his kever. 
you're really close. One of his close colleagues, junior colleagues. Rabbi Chia. Rabbi Chia, one of the one of the editors of the Tosefta, had his great system of education. He taught five boys. Each of the boys mastered a different chumash. Six boys. Each of the boys mastered a different seder of of of, uh, of, of the Mishnah. And now you have the Tosfos, each one with the Masechta. It gets more expansive. I guess, um, all right, you'll do Orachayim. You'll be the Yerdea man. You'll, okay. That will get, get a little overwhelming in our generations how much we have to know. Uh, you read this at Doros. Um, the Riyah Zokin, like Rava in the Gemara, fasted two days on Yom Kippur. I mentioned this back then when we learned about the Rava. He teaches that if Jewish property is confiscated, is purchased, uh, is, is stolen, um, he has the chiddush, he says it's usher for another Jew to buy hot merchandise, hot property, and if a person does buy it, he has to return it to the owner. And these are in times when that's what they did, that's what the goyim did, they stole your property. So, so you're not allowed to buy from the bank? Oh, that's interesting, if they repossess your property. This is the Psaka of the Riyaz. Okay, go, go look it up in the, in the modern... Uh, post scheme to see how it translates in, 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 in halacha. Uh, here's an interesting thing. Elon, you might find this of interest. Maybe, maybe your high school would at least. Uh, he um, brings, at a couple different points in his commentary, testimony from um, some of the great women of Rashi's household, including his aunt Alvina, who was the daughter, the granddaughter of Rashi, the Rivan and Miriam's daughter. Right, Miriam being one of one of Rashi's daughters, right? So Aunt Alvina um, gives testimony on Rashi's personal customs, and those are cited by her nephew, the Riazokin. Uh, elsewhere, he cites the wife of the Rokeach, one of the great Balitosfos from the school of the German school, the Hasidi Ashkenaz. She's the great granddaughter of Rashi from a different from a different side, uh, and she, she figures into his commentaries too. Um, they were wise women, not feminists. The uh, there's a difference. What's that? They did wear to fill in. I don't know. I don't know about the granddaughters and great granddaughters of Rashi. Um, okay. The uh, among his accomplishments, the Riyazakin wrote a commentary on the Sefer Yitzira. Sefer Yitzira, remember being one of the oldest Kabbalistic books that we don't have, but it would be, it would be quoted by many later comment, commentators. Um, the Rush says like this, the Rush who comes at the end of the Tosfos process says that Rabbeinu Tam and the Ri were greater in Chochmah and Minyan than the Rambam. Okay. Whatever that means, that's how he praised them. What is Chochmah and Minyan? That's those are important expressions. Chochma means, yeah, it comes from that the expression comes there, but technically in halacha, chochma is perceived knowledge. There's, a, we, there's no, um, I guess, chet at test, chochma aptitude test that they, that they administer. It's who gets the hardest shilas of a generation. People recognize them as the gedolim. So in chochma, and then minion is if they pass in something, the largest, broadest. Um, Number of people who follow their piske halacha. Chochma minion. So the Rush says Rabbeinu Tam and, and the Riazakim were greater in Chochma minion than the Rambam. And others would dispute that claim. But okay. Um, the Ri 
has a famous son, one of the Balintosos, Rabbeinu Elchanan, who uh, during his father's life was murdered al Kiddush Hashem. This is, the ty- this is the nature of the times in the year 1184. And so the re adopted his grandson, Rav Shmuel, and raised him. Um, the Hasidic Ashkenaz, I mentioned them, the Kabbalistic school, the next link. Um, we're talking about, let's say, the beginning of the Hasidic, the Hasidic Ashkenaz, uh, Rav Shmuel Hasid, it's called. And when I say Hasid, don't confuse this with the much later um, 18th century Hasidic movement. Um, no, no connection. Chosid means what's the difference between a and a tzaddik? Do you know this? They're both righteous people. It's good meters. They're both good meters. What's the difference? So a chosid is somebody who, because of his immense Torah learning, knows not just to do the right thing. He goes what's called lifnim mishurasadim. Go look it up in Birke Avos. He goes beyond the letter of the law. So Hasidic Ashkenaz strove for that extra level in Avos Hashem. And Rav Shmuel Chosid, who lives from 1120 to 1175, and then his more famous son, Rav Yehuda Chosid, who's 1140 to 1217, and wrote one of the most famous books at the time, the Sefer Chasidim, are the founders of the Chasid Ashkenaz school. Rav Yehuda Chosid is not to be confused with Rav Yehuda Chosid. Uh, this is the Baltosvos, the founder of one of the founders of the Chassid Ashkenaz. The second Rabbi Chassid is a much later historical figure who makes who moves to Eretz Yisrael in around the year 1700. Will tell his story too, and would come to the old city and be associated with the shul that would later be called the Chorva, and is part of a. And I think some of you know the story. Uh, part of part of that story. It's totally different times in history, different phenomena. Yeah. But he comes after Rosh or something. Um, no, no, these are before the rush. Oh, I mean, I, I, yeah. No, no, I, I said the rush is the very the last end. one. That's what I was no, 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 no. <laughs> these, these are later balitosvos, but, but... But you just read down the rush to say the thing. Right, I just quoted the rush, but I, I, I haven't talked about the rush yet. Um, their works, they were masters in all of Shas. They also wrote books of Musser and books of Kabbalah, of mysticism. And it's important to mention this too. People think that the only source of mysticism is the Zohar. The Zohar, you'll note, is just around this time going to emerge after 11 centuries in hibernation. But clearly, Kabbalah was something that was learned. It's true that Zohar is the most preeminent work in Kabbalah that we have to the day. They were Kabbalists. We saw this member of Abu Nagadol, part of the, yeah, and, 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 and the Kalonimus family dynasty, uh, certainly knew a lot of Kabbalah and, and were tradi- uh, transmit- transmitters of this. Rav Shmuel was known to travel incognito in order to work on his midos, because when people don't know who you are, it's easier to be humble, especially if you're a gadol. Uh, he, his motivation, though, he didn't want to get any benefit from his Torah knowledge, and people would, let's say, let him cut in line, which is a halacha. You give a Talmud Chacham first dibs on things, uh, but he didn't want to take it. I'm not going to get any. I'm not going to get any hana uh, from Torah. Torah my obligation, not something that I should trade in. Um, his son, Rav Yehuda, I mentioned, wrote the Sefer Chassidim, which is I've mentioned before. That every now and then, we have these um, books that come out that are sui generis, meaning you can't really fit them in any in any known genre. And this is very true of the Sefer Chassidim. It's a book that covers. 
call it machshava, Jewish thought. It's about tefillah. It's a lot of musr. It's hashkafa. It's halacha. And it's a lot of chidushim. And there are things that are brought, I'll give you a couple examples now. There are things that are brought in the Sefer Chassidim that we don't have any pre- pre- uh, precedence on them, but they're accepted. Do you know that the Rishonim, we're holding in the time of the Rishonim, the Rishonim are um, considered in, to a certain level as having Ruach HaKodesh and maybe the last lofty Ruach HaKodesh. They had something. So, you know, it, it was in the Sefer Chassidim, it's something that's taken quite, quite seriously. Um, in it are lots of stories. You have examples of his own personal uh, Avodah Hashem. There's a lot of Kabbalah. Um, he has famous minhagim that he introduces. A person is not allowed to marry a woman he brings with the same name as his mother, and conversely, a woman not marrying the same name as her father. That's an original idea. There are leniencies with that. If it ever comes up for you, you should go ask a Shiloh. There might be grounds for, uh, for leniency. Um, he brings that a person should say say and do nothing on Shabbos that would provoke tears. Based on this, I mentioned this in, in our in, in Shabbos, we learned about Hilchel Shabbos, um, we don't read anything sad. You don't read Holocaust books on Shabbos, for example. Um, he brings a very controversial idea. You know, in classes, I don't know what your elementary school, high school experiences are like, but in my experience, there's always one guy, if not more, who's a troublemaker. Is that, was that your experience? Yeah. Um, so he actually says if there's a very problematic student who's going to influence others, you should indeed expel him rather than ruining a whole class. That's the Sefer Chassidim. I'm just giving you the variety of different topics that he covers. It's vast. It's all of life. And others disagree with this potentially because it may be Sakaras um, Nefashos. Especially, let's say, nowadays, you can throw, a, throw a, a, a child like this out of a Jewish school, that may be the end of their uh, religious life. So it's, it's a step to be taken with, with uh, great care and caution. On the other hand, it's, sometimes it's correct. You have no choice. If he's a, if he's a rodef, he's going to take others down with him, so then maybe you'd have to get him removed, and that's, that was the position of the Sefer Chassidim. Uh, he come, yeah, he, lots of things that are, that are, that are uh, worthy of quoting. Um, he has another analysis. He talks about how mothers should care for their infants. He said they should make sure that the infants stay clean, well-fed, and safe from the elements. <coughs> Writes the Sefer Hasidim. So it's a book that you, when you have the chance, you should look into it, open it up, and, and, and go through it, and realize it's a major, major unusual, uh, you know, has a big impact. Um, we're not sure. Rabbi Yehuda Hasid may have been the author of what we call the Shir HaKavod, otherwise known as... Anim Zmiros. Some attribute that to him, and there's question if that's really true, but it may be. Anim Zmiros, often sung at the end of Shachris and Shabbos. Uh, uh, Shachris, Musaf and Shabbos. Anim Zmiros, Vishirim Ero, Kie Lecha, Nafshi Sarok. Really? Okay. I know, but they don't do that too. Okay. That's a very Israeli term. How do you know it? Do you know, the, do you know any melodies? They, they, that melody is. Like, he knows that melody. No, I've heard of only. Okay. No, in America they do like. Oh, yeah. Still nothing? We'll get you eventually. Okay. Uh, okay, maybe that's really the Um A couple more names from the Anshe, from, from the um, Hasidi Ashkenaz. The Rokeach is Rabbi Lazar of Worms. 
he descends from the Clonimus family, and I've mentioned him before. His dates are 1160 to 1238. Uh, he's a student of Rabbi Yehuda Chassid. He's, he is the source, among other great accomplishments, he's the source of the minhag for fathers to bring their sons uh, wrapped in their talis the first time they go to learn Torah. The idea is the son should be taken to the shul or to the base medrash uh, to learn Torah and wrapped in the talis. We shouldn't see anything tomeh. His first look at Torah should be come through a, 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 a vantage point of pure kedusha, and uh, I did that with my boys. Very, very beautiful minag. Um, in 1196, the Rokeach of Elazar was in shul. It was Parshas Vayeshev, and he gave a drasha. And while he was in shul, the <coughs> Crusaders murdered his wife and his two daughters and his young son. This is, uh, this is the, this is the uh, lot of Claudius Israel during these times. <clears throat> Another student of Yehuda Chassid is, we've met him before too, is Rav Moshe of Kuchi, or if you prefer titles, Sir Moshe of Kuchi. We mentioned it before as, um, as being representative. I mean, it's so unusual in these immensely difficult times of persecution that Jews could also simultaneously be so prominent um, he was knighted he was actually um, yeah he was prominent among, among the, and respected by non-Jews to some degree uh, he's the author of the Smog that's one of the sources referred to in on our daf in the Ein Mishpat one of the great um, books on Halacha and it's one of the principal codes of Ash for the Ashkenazi Jews together with the Or Zerua, which we're going to see um, before the tour, and then later on the Shulchan Aruch. But it's one of when I say when I say halachic code, that makes sense. Like the Shulchan Aruch, it was the equivalent of the Shulchan Aruch was the Smag. It's also one of the first works to integrate Ashkenazi and Sephardi Psak together, not just the Rift, but generally Ashkenazi and Sephardi Psak. In um, twelve thirty six. He had a very famous journey to Spain. Spain, by this point, the Jews had become, many of the Jews had become very assimilated, enamored of the Spanish culture, and he went around darshaning. And the people flocked to him, this great, this great speaker, and they, he inspired, and uh, people who had been assimilated started coming over and saying, I'm going to keep mitzvahs again, I'm going to start wearing talis and tefillin, and he led about tshuva movement, Rav Moshe Kuchi. Um, Four years later, in 1240, he was on the delegation. All these stories I'm going to say again. I'm just trying to give you the background so you can, you can put it all together. 1240 is on the delegation with Rabbeinu Yechiel to defend the Jews against attacks by one of the uh, uh, terrible enemies of the Jews, Nicholas Donin. That's going to lead to the, whole, to, the, to the famous book burning in Paris in 1242. So Moshe is going to be a part of that story. Um, on the Sefer Mitzvah's Gedolus, there's the Smag. So commentary on that is the Smak, the Sefer Mitzvah's Ketanos, written by Rav Yitzchak of Korbei, one of his students, um, which is often, they're, they're, they're in tandem. Okay, that's Hasidi Ashkenaz. I'm going to mention now two more of the Bali Tosfos. Two more of the Bali Tosfos. Even though I'm not done with Tosfos, I'm going to tie up the Tosfos in a little while. We get to the generation of the Orzarua and Rav, Rav Meir of Rutenberg and Rosh. 
but um, at least in terms of the mid to late Tosfos, I, I, I promised you I'm going to talk about Rav Shimshon of Shantz from 1150 to 1230. Um, I said that his was one of the versions of Tosfos that we can look up. Um, the Mechaber, excuse, excuse me, uh, many later sources, the Erechel Shochan tells us that he's considered the author of Tosfos in most of Shas. So I mentioned that Tosfos is often anonymous. Well, who put it together? Many attribute that to the Shimshon of Shans. That's a pretty massive uh, accomplishment. His rebbe's were Rabbeinu Tam and Riyah Zokin. His older brother was the Riha Bachor. And he was the brother-in-law of Rav Moshe of Kuchi, so they were clearly very interconnected. After Rabbeinu Tam and Riyah Zokin, the Rush calls him the next most important of the, all of the Tosvos. These are days where the world is torn apart, part of a controversy. They may know about the, who the controversy centers on. Really? The Rambam. They burned the Rambam's books. And there were people, Gdolin, who felt that the Rambam was a heretic. And we're going to have to talk about that. Um, he chorused. Now, Rabbeinu Shimshon was involved in this. Um, he actually wrote letters corresponding with one of the great opponents of the Rambam, the Ramah, the Yad Ramah, um, he's generally critical of the Rambam, even though evident in his discussion, he sees the Rambam as a gadol and he has great admiration, but he also has his reservations. So, you should know, I mean, even though today the Rambam is Rumashal Olam, one of the greatest Jews by far to walk the planet, um, there were great Jews who had their problems <coughs> and their reservations. Rabbi Shimshon is, is, is huge as well. Uh, the other aspect I want to talk about in his real life, Rav Shimshon, in about 1211, will, will lead a journey of 300 Bali Tosfos from France and England to make Aliyah, Teretz HaKodesh. And it's the, um, one of the first large Aliyahs, one of the first large groups of Jews to come to Eretz HaKodesh uh, since the times of the Talmud. From this point on, they renamed Rav Shimshon of Shantz. From this point, he's Rav Shimshon Ish Yerushalayim, the man of Jerusalem. Later, he moves to Akko, and he dies there. He understands that the defeat of Salahadin against the Crusaders on July 4th, 1187, a major historical turning point, um, is the... Not the end of the Crusaders, but it's a massive defeat. It's after that that they have to withdraw from Jerusalem. And Rav Shimshon sees that whole event as a sign of what he calls Ikvasa de Meshicha, the footsteps of the Messianic era. He compares it with nothing less than, he says it's like Koresh Melech Pras. Remember Cyrus's declaration when the Jews, the Jews could come back and rebuild the second temple? That's how Rabbi Shimshon saw the um, victory of Salah Adin against the Crusaders. Included in the 300 uh, Balitosfos was another figure named Rav Yehonasan Milunil, who's a disciple of the Third Rivid. He's one of the first Rishonim to write on the old subject of agricultural mitzvos. We call the mitzvos of Tlias Ba'aretz. Why one of the first? It's not relevant. Nobody's living there in Israel until these Balitosfos move to Eretz Israel, and suddenly you want to know do I have to, be ma- do I have to separate Jomos and Maestros? Is a Shemitah year. 
So one of the earlier sources, and it's incredibly relevant in our days, you'd look up Rav Yonosan Milil, he's one of the first Rishonim to write about this. Uh, the last of the Balitostos I'm going to talk about today is Rav Yaakov of Marvej, who has a book, talk about unusual books, called Shelos Uchuvos Mina Shemaim, Questions and Answers from Heaven, which is, as the title implies, quite literal. Uh, he's not, it's not the usual Tosfos form. There's no work like it. Um, he has questions, and he brings in the book answers from the based in Shemayla, from the heavenly court. It's good that he can uh, And it's accepted. And some of them become halacha. For example, uh, he paskins on a machlokus, on the machlokus from Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam, Elu ve'elu divre elokim chaim. He says both are legitimate views. The tefillin? Okay, I'm going to move back and I, I'm going to uh, talk briefly about uh, not one of the great scholars, but a really interesting figure who I've mentioned before, and then we're going to introduce Rambam briefly. Um, Binyamin Mitudela, who I've mentioned before, his dates are given, he lived from 1130 to 1973 we don't have any, it, it, it doesn't seem that there's anybody earlier than Binyamin Mitudela who mentions the existence of China. It's later. It's later. Again, Binyamin Mitudela is 1130-1173, so he's, he's, he's one of the first. Um, his, that Marco, he's 100 years before Marco Polo. Marco Polo really was the big one. Yeah. Um, he leaves Europe in 1165, he visits over 300 cities. Uh, he was in Surum Pumbadisa. I mentioned him recently, I saw Pumbadisa. At this point, remember he goes back to Surum Pumbadisa, and, and in Pumbadisa he finds 3,000 Jews in Surah, there are no Jews left, and he dives by the Kibbutz Zadikim. Um, when he was in Eretz Israel, he goes to the Mars, Mars Machpelah, the, the, in Chevron, the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs, and he describes in vivid detail when you pass through, I'm quoting him, an iron door and descend, one then encounters a sequence of three caves. He describes very, very exactly. The first two are empty. In the third cave are six tombs arranged opposite one another. Has anybody been in these caves in this classroom? Correct. I knew that. Nobody's allowed down there. There's conspiracy theories that some Jews have snuck in, but to the best of our knowledge, the last Jew to go down beneath those metal grates was a 12-year-old uh, girl, the daughter of one of the archaeologists, before the waqf clamped down and, 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 and then from that point till today prevented Jews from going down there. But we have testimonies like Binyami Mitudela and later of Avadimi Bartanora who described the cave down beneath you get there, theoretically, in the Yitzchak Rivka section on the south, the south part of the building. 
in the Mars Manhela, um, underneath the Muslim carpets, usually Rivka and Yitzhak are closed out to Jews except for 10 days out of the year. Um, and underneath there, it's all locked, you can't get to it, but it's the most interesting part, it's in the women's section, um, is, is this metal grates that lead downstairs to the original cave. And, and, and he's one of the major sources of t describing what exists down there. I heard that 12 year old girl forgot everything that she started. So. Okay, all kinds of legends. Well, yeah, yeah, if you go down there, Absolutely, many, many such legends, no question. Although clearly, Binyamin Metudela, Ravavati Bartonor, and others did go down and came back up again. What? The Bartonor? Yes. No, different. No. And uh, to a rabbi, to you and me. Why did they have a sign? The Muslim. Well, it kind of has to do with the um, political situation these days. I don't know if you know this, there's a war, see? And um, some of the Jews in are, aren't so in, who are in power aren't so into Jewish history, to put it mildly, and um, are happy to give up our holiest places to the Muslims as like an act of, 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 of graciousness. Here, you take the Mars Mahpela, you guys get the Temple Mount, we'll be fine without it, because for them it weighs on their shoulders like, like so many guilt trips. They'd be happy to get rid of tradition. Why does the Muslims want Oh, because of supersessionism, this idea that we keep talking about, that whatever's holy to us is de facto theirs, because they see themselves as the next in line. You're right, it's highly Why would they even care about Yitzchak and It's so ironic, the division since Baruch Goldstein massacred people, so then the, the present status quo is that most of the year the Jews get what's called Avram and Sarah and Yaakov and, and Leah, while the Muslims get Yitzchak and Rivka, which is the least logical of anything. They should get Ibrahim, was meaningful to them, Yitzchak much less. Realize though that all of that area upstairs is a Mameluk creation. It's not any of the above. The cave downstairs is the one that contains all of them, and till today we have no access. Uh, tomorrow, Imir Sashem, we will. Uh, I will not introduce the Rambam right now, but we will hopefully focus on the on, on the great life of the of Rav Moshe ben Maimon.